Welcome to Hidden Cities, a podcast about the invisible infrastructure that shapes urban spaces and experiences. Rather than looking at cities from a design perspective, Hidden Cities explores how policy and legislation informs our built environment. This series is about housing affordability, and in each episode I speak with an expert about a policy or economic approach that impacts housing. Initially, I imagined I'd be looking at local legislation, such as zoning or negative gearing, But the more I researched, it became apparent that there are many factors that contribute to why so many people are living in precarious housing or are denied access to safe shelter entirely. I didn't expect to have to research global flows of finance to understand why my rent was increasing. This series of Hidden Cities is kind of an idiot's guide to housing affordability, where I'm your idiot speaking to experts to make these often complex policies understandable. If you want to understand why negative gearing was such a political hot potato, what Airbnb means for rental availability, or why you feel like you'll never be able to afford your own home, Hidden Cities helps explain. The first episode starts at a local Melbourne level, where I chat with Professor Libby Porter and Dr David Kelly about the Public Housing Renewal Program. Libby and David are both academics at RMIT in the Centre for Urban Research, as well as co-founders in the Save Public Housing Collective, along with public housing residents. Both Libby and David underpin their work in urban research with understandings of the ongoing legacies of settler colonialism and urban displacement. At first glance, the public housing renewal program seems like a good strategy, improving both the quality and quantity of public housing in Victoria. But as Libby and David explain, it is a program of displacement, privatisation of public assets and a decrease in public housing in a state with a waiting list of over 100,000 people. This interview was recorded at the beginning of 2020, before the pandemic struck. The impacts of COVID-19 have revealed the necessity of well-built and maintained public housing for the safety of everyone in the community. I joined Libby and David in a recording booth at RMIT and began with the simple question, what is the Public Housing Renewal Program? So the Public Housing Renewal Program is a policy of the Victorian government. It sits underneath what's called Homes for Victorians, which is the Victorian government's housing strategy, so Mm -hmm. it's kind of one pillar of a suite, Um, and it's the only pillar that's really focused on public housing, Mm -hmm. ostensibly. Um, The others are more about, like, inclusionary zoning or, you know, various levels of affordable housing, quote-unquote. So, kind of discrete thing with a set of money attached, and its aim is to, uh, by targeting a series of effectively inner urban lowish rise sort of medium density sites mm-hmm. in good locations to remove all the residents pull the buildings down and redevelop as a mix of public and private or social and private housing yeah so it's basically an injection of private investment into what is currently a public asset all under the guise of renewing tired dilapidated old buildings um, with a kind of corollary narrative of the people themselves are tired and dilapidated and thus need renewing um, which is obviously some of the patronizing kind of stigma that comes with these kinds of things but uh, I guess with our critical hat on we would say it's a form of private it is a privatization of of public housing yeah Mm. that Homes for Victorians policy came from the Victorian Auditor General's report in 2012 and 2017, which basically said public housing in Victoria is 
at crisis levels and has been for a number of years because the department itself doesn't know what stock it has, doesn't know the state of the stock and is making no effort to rectify a series of problems related to supply but also maintenance. Mm -hmm. So Victorian government spends the least amount per person on public housing out of every Australian state. So that was one of the catalyzing forces, but its genesis probably, it's, it's, it's a bit of a global policy in a mm. way, these public-private partnerships which seek to renew really attractive inner-city real estate and relocate residents in part of that process. We see it in almost every Western liberal country. This privatisation of public housing is a global trend. It's problematic because it places housing that serves an essential function as a human right for shelter into an environment where profitability supersedes other needs. The rationale for the sites came from a private consultant who did a commercial feasibility study. So all the sites were selected according to basically the rent gap, Mm -hmm. how much economic potential is latent within each site. So that's how they were selected, not because of some abstract social good ideal, but rather how much money can we extract from each site, which one is, what's the low-lying low lying fruit and which has the highest leverage value. Mm. And which will be the most attractive to the private partner yes. to come in and be involved in the... Um, in, reap the gains of the redevelopment here. So, In your research, did you find anything about the um, demographic of the wider suburbs where these spots were, sites were located and identified? Well, we can comment on that. We didn't really focus on that specifically mm. um, within the, um, the report that we delivered, um, but they're certainly located in what are now relatively well-to-do areas, um, which I think speaks volumes for... Well, I mean, it tells us a lot about actually the history of public housing in Victoria and Melbourne in particular, um, that, you know, previously located on on what was lower value land. And of course, that land is now really high value because they're in the, you know, sought after um, inner and middle ring kind of suburbs. Um, uh, interestingly, uh, we had a, st- a student actually do a really good piece of work on the question of social mix mm-hmm. um, in on, that arises out of this this whole policy. Um, and her analysis showed that the when you measure at the neighbourhood level, um, the public housing renewal program will reduce social mix because it injects more <laughs> well-to-do people yeah. um, into the neighbourhood than, um, than is currently there because it displaces a whole lot of mm. uh, more disadvantaged folk. So, Yeah, the demographic of these places in which the sites are located is more diverse for having them sites there. Mm. Yes. So when people move out, they mm. become more homogenous, more white, more middle class. Ironically, the diversity and edginess is what probably attracts mm. the white gentrifying class, but that's the very thing that's going to go with these renewal programs. Mm. Yeah. And so under the proposed renewal program or what is being enacted, mm-hmm. what is the split on the site in terms of previous mm. residents being rehoused in the new development and then new uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, well, it hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I mean, it's in the process yeah. of happening. Uh, notionally, the department has said there's a, of this 
famous right to return. <laughs> so has said to all the residents, we're going to relocate you, but you'll have the right to come back once the redevelopment is done. Um, and a number of the legal centres, uh, community legal centres, got involved in a process to ensure that that was kind of written into some legal documents, yeah. which would nonetheless be actually quite hard to say, hold them to. Um, there there probably is globally for that kind of thing, but um, you know, it'd be an unusual public housing tenant that would take the government to court on that to prove its point, to prove their point, um, and would need a lot of support. So you know, whilst yes, it's a you know, it's a thing, it's a legal thing there. It, um, it's more performative than anything yeah. else, I suspect. Yeah. Uh, plus, it doesn't really mean anything in the context of a whole range of other factors, um, especially the most practical one of which is just the number of bedrooms mm -hmm. and, and the configuration of bedrooms within what will become the social housing aspect, i.e. the no longer public, because yep. it will be community housing. If you're confused about why we're talking about community housing here, but we're previously talking about public housing, just sit tight. Libby will explain these terms shortly. The difference is important. The one thing we have been noticing is that there will be um, what are currently sort of, you know, two and three bedroom kinds of configurations will become one and two bedroom kinds of configurations. So the ability of people to move back is somewhat hampered by that, uh, never mind the extraordinary and extensive international evidence that exists that shows us that once people, once households have been relocated, um, and this is always framed as choice when, of yeah. course, it wasn't their choice to move in the first place. People tend not to return because they've already gone to all that effort <laughs> to get their kids into new schools and find a new GP and, you know, reorganise their lives yeah. around another another place. So we typically see kind of, you know, 15 to 20% return because of all of those dynamics, mm -hmm. um, which is often presented by policymakers as that's people's choice and, yeah. you know, that is a good reason why they needed to be regenerated but is, of course, obscuring a whole lot of other dynamics that are actually underway. Yeah. Mm. And in the proposed new developments, what percentage of the development is set aside as community housing yeah. compared to private rental? Mm. It varies across mm. sites. Okay. Mm. On balance and the kind of golden ratio that they're operating on, it's 70-30. So 70 private, 30 social. It seems like it's a number plucked from the air. There is no basis in social studies, mm -hmm. social science literature that says that this is the optimal ratio for positive encounters between diverse social groups. Absolutely no research says that, but it is the, actually the optimal amount that any private developer will tell you is the bare, is the maximum amount of social housing we can accommodate in order to sell the rest of the private. Mm. Any more than that, it's going to be hard to sell the private. So it's a market-led number, not mm -hmm. a social-led mm -hmm. number. Precisely, mm -hmm. yeah. And when you've looked at each of the sites, does that split accommodate the return of all residents or... Does that mean that some mm. residents don't have space to return into? Not all residents can return. So if we just take Walker Street as an example, there's 10 dwelling uplift, mm -hmm. there's 10 dwellings, but the amount of people who require three or four bedroom who live on Walker Street currently, um, not all of them can be accommodated back on the site. 
So whilst the site can accommodate more dwellings, it can it accommodates less people. So if you have a family with even two children, mm-hmm. you you notionally can't return because or if, if there's if there's a high proportion of families who want to return, not all of them can be accommodated. Mm. Basically, mm. fundamentally the capacity of the site has been reduced. So whilst there's more units, there's less people that can be accommodated, so mm. there's less capacity. But they're, they're betting on that because at the Kensington um, Public Housing Renewal Programme, they observed that it was something like 21% of people returned. At the Carlton one, they couldn't get a precise number because the data wasn't there, but the researchers anecdotally said it was about 14% of people returned. So they're betting on people not wanting to return. Yeah. Families generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And um, I've just noticed as I'm talking to you, I've used public, social, and you've used community. Mm, we so should define these yeah, terms. It's yeah. The public housing renewal program, mm. but it will deliver. What kind of housing? Really community housing. So to be clear on the differences between these terms. um, So social housing is uh, a category of housing that is basically not market housing. So within within the category social housing, you would include public housing, community housing, i.e. housing provided by not the state, but by Mm not-for-profit organisations um, who nonetheless are delivering low-income housing, right? And there are various other kinds of, you know, not public or community, but other kinds of social housing. So that's a kind of catch-all phrase. Um, Public housing is housing that is owned and managed by the state. Mm -hmm. Community housing might be owned by the state but managed by a community housing provider or it might be owned and managed by a community housing provider. So it's <laughs> the distinctions feel kind of um, small and unimportant, but they're tremendously important. The Safe Public Housing website offers some further clarification. Community housing is run by housing support agencies that are NGOs. Rent is 30% of a renter's income, and it is not as secure as public housing. Public housing is owned and subsidised by the state, It is there to provide a safety net and rent is 25% of the renter's income. Social housing is both public housing and community housing. And according to the work of the Save Public Housing Collective, we need more public housing in Victoria and less private housing. If there's a private developer involved Mm -hmm. who owns and manages the community housing aspect of Mm. it, Again, it varies between the sites, but um, the some of the units will be owned and managed by the community housing provider, mm-hmm. and some of the units will be owned by the department, but managed by the community housing provider. So what that means, if, given that the, the definition of public housing is owned and managed by the state, mm-hmm. there will be zero public housing on these sites because of that definition. All of it will be community housing of one form or another. And I guess it's interesting as well to, to speculate on the fact that once you've uh, transferred management of uh, housing from the state to a community housing provider, often the title is the next thing to come, where it, where it just becomes a much easier kind of argument to make. Well, you might as well have the title too. Um, so then we get a wholesale uh, yeah. handover. And really, I think my read is the only reason that the state has not fully handed everything over is because there's been a lot of backlash. Um, so they've kind of, you know, 
rolled back a wee bit from that, but still the door is totally open and, and mm. you know, the, the, traje- the trajectory, pardon me, is um, absolutely in that direction. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And apparently, but the model being that all of these dwellings will now be community housing, again, it raises another point on the right to return because you do not have the right to return to public housing. You have the right to return to place, uh-huh. which will be managed by community housing. Um, and there are real differences between the rights you receive and the rent you pay and the subsidies you attract and a whole range of differences that is enveloped in that differentiation. And I guess, so from my understanding, the policy was developed. It's been framed as increasing affordability of housing. Mm. Um, what is the capacity for it to deliver affordable housing? And also, how does that sit against the like current statistics of what the need is for mm. affordable housing in the state. It has to radically in change the housing system in mm. order to do that. And the only way to do that is to expand it massively. Mm. Mm. Um, so in the end of 2018, a, in a hurry report led by Julie Lawson came out showing how we can actually make our housing system more affordable. And it was massive capital injection into the system directly. So we currently spend $4.4 billion a year at a Commonwealth level on Commonwealth rental assistance, mm-hmm. which goes to community housing but not public housing. Yeah. It's a subsidy to prop up a failing aspect of the housing system. If you were to take that $4.4 million and just directly inject it into public housing, it would provide more it would make the system more affordable in general. Mm-hmm. But as it stands, it's it doesn't do that at all from what we can see. Mm. The other thing it does in, in the bigger affordability question is, of course, injects more capital investment in places that are already hot mm-hmm. um, in terms of property values and spiralling up, upwards, spiralling prices. Um, so you, you get a knock-on, effectively gentrification effect of rising land values, um, which is precisely the thing that you, you don't want. Um, so it, it, it's kind of, it, it's like a double whammy. The, 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 the private market doubles down on its, on its investment because um, not only do you have more land available to rest uh, and extract wealth from but then you perpetuate that by resting and extracting wealth which then flows on into more extraction of wealth if you're a private landowner um, so it, I would say it uh, we, I mean we haven't seen it happen yet but the the trajectory would suggest that we will see an increase in unaffordability not not a more affordable housing market both from your research, but also being involved in the advocacy group. Mm. Um, where have people that have been supposedly temporarily displaced mm. been rehoused in mm. the meantime? Mm. And for people who've stayed, and have people stayed in that temporary situation? Mm. Or if they had to move on to subsequent temporary... Temporary situations. It, obviously it varies. Mm-hmm. Um, the... The understandings we have are people have been moved in some instances quite a long way away. Some people have been housed more locally um, in the in the neighbourhood or nearby, but they've had to fight fairly hard to make that happen um, and and really um, 
make their views felt and place themselves in really difficult situations in order for the department to say, all right, we'll find you somewhere local. In general, people have been pushed much more to much more peripheral areas of the city. Um, so we know of families in Werribee and Tarnit and... Yeah. Um, well, there's, for the people who held out the longest and demonstrated the amount of distress that moving away from the neighbourhood would cause them, they were, after a period of time, able to be relocated into suitable accommodation mm -hmm. nearby where they already were. So Fitzroy, some in North Kitt still, but mm -hmm. um, it does vary and it varies according to what the town's capacity is to mm -hmm. fight for. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm. Like, were those residents relocated into other public housing infrastructure or was it mm. into community or private rental? A, a bit of both. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, a bit of both in the sense that because of this, the government has had to buy long-ish term leases from the private sector, so taken out head lease agreements on properties around the metropolitan region for a period of up to five years. So take out a lease from a private landlord, they give them market or above market rent for five years guaranteed, and then they renovate the house at the end of that five years. So you get a, a renovation and guaranteed rent for five years. If you're a private landlord? Yeah. So you're just going cha-ching. Yeah. Um, so we tried to understand what the breadth of that is because that's actually and that's a that's a massive cost that hasn't been factored in anywhere. Some people have been put into public housing somewhere else. I haven't heard of anyone going to community housing no. yet. And I guess at a kind of more conceptual or bigger picture level, like what does the loss of public housing mean for a community or like why is that an important thing to protect? Mm. Such an important question. Well, from my perspective, I mean, public housing is um, absolutely essential <laughs> to a well-functioning society. Um, I mean, I wish we lived in a world where my housing was not commodified at all because the right to dwell safely and be secure is a right, not a, it's not a market option. Um, however, we don't live in that world, so uh, public housing is a really important way in which we... Uh, mitigate against I guess the, the worst excesses of the market mm -hmm. public and you know that so that's important to, to recognize and of course in Australia we've had a history of a very residualized view of public housing so in other places public housing is an entirely normalized and fully in, uh, embedded integrated aspect of the housing market um, where you have you know, large percentages of the housing stock is delivered as public housing or social housing more generally. In Australia that's never been the case and so we have this kind of cultural perception of public housing being a kind of where you go when you're a failure yeah. um, or just before the street um, which is, is a problem actually because we don't value public housing in the way that we should as a really important part of of a well-functioning housing system that actually cares about people being housed um, even when you can't afford uh, market rent. So the loss of public housing is a big statement about where our values appear to lie, which is in the, the, the perpetual commodification of housing and the trajectory of continuing to hand over 
public assets, basically, to, to private companies to profit from. It's essentially a profit motive. Uh, and that's pretty egregious and disgusting, um, particularly because it burdens the, the least advantaged um, in our society in an appalling way. Since recording this interview, one of the public housing sites that is part of the renewal scheme was hit with delays due to asbestos being found. The Abbotsford site, which will see 112 public units being replaced with 170 private apartments and 113 community housing units, is under a contract that allows the private developer to be compensated for an anticipated $10,000 a day for any unforeseen delays. Libby was quoted in The Age commenting that public money is being poured into developers' pockets for no public benefits. Hundreds of people were displaced from their former homes on this site. The option to refurbish was never properly considered, and now this shameful property will cost the public purse even more. If you're interested in public housing and Libby and David's work, you can find out more at savepublichousing.com. And please join me for the next episode of Hidden Cities, where I explore a policy that potentially swung an election result, the wonderful and mysterious world of negative gearing.